Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 17, if you'd follow along. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which waged war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's to be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a wonderful thing it is for us to be gathered here today. You have made us and blessed us and you sustain us. I pray that your spirit has already pushed the world's cares and concerns out of our thoughts. I pray that you have created a mighty thirst in our minds and hearts for you. It is you that we need. It is you who is worthy of our thoughts and desires. May your spirit empower us to consider your goodness, your faithfulness, your love, your grace, your sovereignty. You have perfect knowledge over everything, including each of us. You know our every need, our doubts, our fears. You know our every weakness and unhelpful attitude. You know our physical struggles and our emotional stresses. I plead this morning for you to minister to our hearts, to our souls, that you might free us from pursuing personal gratification and pleasure and show us how to rest in you for our peace contentment and joy. Thank you, Father, for the community in which we live. We thank you for the countless people who contribute to make it a blessed place. Pray that we all may steward it well, not for our sake, but for your glory. May we not be tempted to bask in our own good fortune. Give us a passion and a desperation to make your name great among the nations. Guard us against the temptation to rest our hopes in our standard of living. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required, you tell us. Convince and convict us of the many ways we have been blessed in order that we might bless others. Lord, for your glory and for your honor. And we ask this today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
I take a moment of personal privilege to thank you for last Sunday. Uh, it was not only a surprise, it was a shock uh, to our system. Karen and I have talked. It took me about 15 minutes to process what was going on from the time I was told what was unfolding until I actually understood what was unfolding. I don't know whether to be, um, I don't know if it's a you problem or a me problem that you were able to keep this from me for six months. But we'll continue to think about that in the days to come. But I can honestly say Karen and I were, um, we were both surprised and we were both grateful for the afternoon, the time that um, we had together and all of the work that you did to bring it to pass. I know that those things don't happen uh, easily, and there were many moving parts, and uh, so we're very grateful. You made us feel honored, and uh, I don't know how else to express that other than that we care deeply for you and for our community, and we're grateful to do life here with you and continue to serve our Lord together. So someone said, hope you have another 20 years. I'm not sure that's feasible, but we'll do what the Lord wants to do. So now, with that said, let us turn our attention to the text this morning. You know, Milton Community Church was formed uh, a year ago. We are now into our second year together. Grace of Alpharetta and Crabapple First Baptist Church coming together because we were convinced and convicted that we could do better together than we could apart. And I think that you have all excelled uh, over the last year. Things, uh, we were warned about many things and there were many fears and concerns about what might transpire, but you have done the best that I think possible under the circumstances. And um, we have a healthy church culture here today uh, because of all your hard work and your willingness to adapt and to change. You know, a local church is not supposed to reflect or look like its surrounding community. That's not what we aspire to be. But neither is it supposed to be isolated from the community. We do aspire to be in it, just not of it. And I think that's important, and that's kind of what I'm focusing on today what I was going to be focused on last week, but we are going to talk about it because I think God has put it on our, my heart and our hearts in front of us, something we need to think about. And the question that I've asked myself in recent weeks is, what do we want the community of Milton to know about us? If we had a clean slate upon which to write, what would we want them to know, to think, to observe about us? And so I want us to think about three simple things that we would have them know that I think are reflected in the text that we have opened ourselves up for this morning here in the second chapter of 1 Peter. Those three things are, number one, who we are, number two, what we are doing, and number three, what motivates us to do what we are doing and be who we are. First of all, I would say to you that we are Christians. Now, before you roll your eyes and call me Captain Obvious, 
I think that it's important for us to pause a minute and think about this. This term, Christian, is supercharged with many mischaracterizations. It always has been, in fact. Our world most often portrays Christians in a negative light. You understand that. We all see it, know it, we feel it each and every day. And churches, unfortunately, often affirm those mischaracterizations by the things that we do or the things we do not do. One writer that I read offered seven marks of a stereotypical American Christian. This is what he said. First of all, he said, you love to argue, fight, and attack. Number two, you practice Christianity through groups and institutions. That is through conferences, conventions, schools, denominations, etc., Number three, your theology is borrowed from celebrities like Osteen, Driscoll, Piper, Moore, McDonald. Number four, your online faith does not reflect the reality. In other words, you post verses and platitudes out there in cyberspace that really don't characterize your daily living. Number five, he said you love labels. You call each other names like liberal, conservative, Calvinist, egalitarian, traditional, etc. Number six, he said you crave efficiency over spirituality. Ministries, mission, outreach are only successful if they are quick, streamlined, financially rewarding, and produce positive statistical results. In other words, faith is analyzed using business principles instead of spiritual ones. Number seven, you need entertainment. Camps, parties, conferences, guest speakers, concerts, and if you don't get them, you quickly pack your bags and move somewhere that does offer them. In summary, he said this. He said, the greatest benefactor of Christianity is yourself, not others. And the worst enemy of American Christianity isn't heresy, it's boredom. That's how one man, at least, perceives the Christian community, the church. How does our community see us? In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we read these words, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This word Christian means little Christ. It means those who follow Christ or emulate Christ. And many people take the name of Christian without its meaning. Many adopt the name but fail to represent truly as little Christ. Being a little Christ does not mean being perfect in the here and now. We aspire to become perfect, but we will always falter in this world because we continue to be fallen creatures in a fallen world. We rest in Christ's perfection that is imputed to us as His followers. But we are not yet perfect. Christians are people who believe the gospel and follow Christ. It's just that simple. People who believe the gospel 
and follow Christ. Not people who adopt a moniker or a name or join a church necessarily. So what is the gospel? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a very succinct and effective definition in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. This is what he wrote. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and that is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, we understand Most of you here today are in churches frequently, and you understand what the gospel is. God created man in his image, and he made man to be the vice regent, that is to be the manager, the steward over all that God has created, to reflect God's glory, to reflect the image of God that he has created us in. But mankind rebelled against God. And humanity was plunged into the bondage of sin. Now, sin's a deal breaker. Sin is an absolute deal breaker. There's no access to God as a sinner. God is holy and will not tolerate sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they took all of humanity with us. They took all of us who are their descendants with them. And they took us into exile from paradise from God's presence. No human could ever retrace the steps. No human being could ever return to that presence of God. Sin simply disqualifies us, and we're all sinners. We deserve death for our sin, death that is physical, death that is spiritual, death that is eternal. But God did something incredible. Rather than condemn and annihilate us As he was just to do, God began to reclaim that which was fallen. He sent Jesus to seek and to save what was lost. He condescended and came into this world taking on humanity that he might live perfectly. Where Adam failed, the last Adam, who is Christ, succeeded living perfectly with no sin, but then taking sin upon himself, our sin, he willingly went to the cross where he took on the wrath of God for sin. And all of God's wrath was poured out upon him. He was buried and on the third day resurrected. He became the first fruits of a new resurrected life. He became the first fruits, a new race, a race descended from the last Adam. His resurrection proved God's acceptance of his sacrifice, and it demonstrated his power over sin, death, and hell. Then he ascended into heaven where he sits even now at the right hand of God, interceding for us, and one day is prepared to return and gather all who belong to him. Until then, until that moment, the gospel is proclaimed all around this broken world. That broken people might be called to God, might be pointed to God, and be redeemed by Him to be a part of His eternal family. And God is calling out those who He's going to redeem. All who will admit their sin and rebellion against God, who believe that Christ's work was sufficient 
to pay for their sin and to redeem them, to enable them access into God's presence again and reject their own efforts and attempts to gain God's acceptance, who trust only in what Christ has done, those are the ones who are saved. These people reject the things and philosophies of this fallen world and they follow Christ. They are little Christs. What does it mean to follow Christ? This is what the gospel is. What does it mean to follow Christ? It means we pursue Christ and obey his word even though we are imperfect. It means we are looking, longing for, and awaiting a future in his glorious presence. Such people are followers of Christ. Such people are Christians. Not people who simply take a name for themselves. Not people who live in a particular country. But people who have repented of sin, believed the gospel, trusted in Christ. They take the name of Christ because they've been born again into Christ. And now they follow Christ. You can tell them not because they bear a certain name, but you can, bear, you can tell them because they bear the characteristics of the one they follow. These people are being restored to God's image. Peter calls them a chosen race. Hallelujah. Left to our own devices, left to our own fallen nature, none of us will ever turn to God or pursue God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do when they heard the sound of God approaching? They fled from Him. Sin can't stand being in the presence of holiness. So they ran out of fear. And all of us do the same thing. God came looking for us. God came with purpose to redeem that which he would reclaim. And it is the marvelous work of God who chooses and works his choice in us. Peter calls us a royal priesthood. Royalty in our world is almost um, comical, is it not? We see it happen all the time. We watch the royals across the ocean as they live life. And quite frankly, most of us wish we could be them, right? You'd like that status. You'd like that pomp and pageantry and resources that uh, are seemingly endless. Royalty in our world is hard to grasp and appreciate. We have fairy tales like Cinderella who went from rags to riches, from being a peasant girl, not even accepted by her own family, to being the princess. A person in the ancient world had no hope for royal standing. If you were a Jew, unless you were born in the line of David, there was no hope for royalty in your future. If you were a Gentile, not in the emperor's line, there was no hope for royalty. But God, when he adopts his people, brings us into his royal family, his divine family. He says, we are royalty. We're royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood was comprised of the tribe of Levi. This tribe... Uh, had its problems early on, filled with sin and violence. 
God took these people and transformed them into vessels for His use to produce fruit for His glory. Just like He does with us. Peter calls us a holy nation, a holy people. Our world is depraved. All you have to do is open your eyes, right? All you have to do is turn on uh, a news site or uh, a newscast. And you see it played out in front of us in full living color. We see depravity every day. We see it in those who take the center position of the news out there, the celebrities, the politicians, the athletes. But we also see it in the people next door. We see it in ourselves when we look in the mirror. God pursues us, calls us, and transforms us to make us holy as He is holy. And it's not fully realized at this time, but it's coming. Thank God it's coming. In the meantime, we are growing in holiness, being distinct from this world. Peter says we are a people for God's own possession. He's making us into a spiritual house. A spiritual house comprised of living units, living materials, you and I, living stones that we might reflect his glory in this world so that the gospel goes out and is proclaimed and God is made great among all people that he will continue to call out those he will reclaim. In his possession, we are for his divine and perfect use not for our own. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We want Milton to know that we are unapologetically Christian, genuinely Christian, not in name only, but by the gospel in who we belong to and through the characteristics of his that we emulate in our lives. But secondly, we are not a finished product We're not yet a finished product, but we are growing in Christ. I want them to know that we're believers, that we're Christians. We're unapologetic about that, but we're not perfect yet. What's the biggest complaint against the Christian community? Hypocrites. Y'all are hypocrites. Yes, everyone that's living is a hypocrite. We just know it, and we should own it. Not to justify our sin, but to take away that argument. We have his righteousness accredited to our account. It's imputed to us. And it's going to be fully realized in the future. But yes, we will continue to falter. We will continue to stumble. We will continue to fail. But that's not who we are. That's not who we want to be identified as. We wrestle with impure thoughts and desires and emotions, doubts and behaviors, but we're not defined by them. We are defined by Christ's righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. We're spared from judgment because of Christ's work, but we're saved to a better existence because of Christ's work. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We aspire to abstain from fleshly passions and temptations. These things wage war against our souls, and sometimes they get the upper hand, even though we're in Christ. But in Him, His Spirit equips and empowers us as we surrender to Him daily. Listen to these words the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through your deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you, each one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What an incredible description of this life in Christ. Yes, broken. Yes, we continue to falter. But in it, in the power of God's Spirit working in us and through us, we walk distinctly from this world. As Milton Community Church, we seek to love God according to His Word. That is, with all of our hearts, minds, and soul. What does this mean? It's not intended to be a rigid compartmentalization. But it represents the whole life, that wholeheartedly, the total of our life should be loving God with our energy, with our focus, with all of our being. And we're to love one another and others by His grace. What does that mean? We're to love others in the same way that Christ has loved us. Now, how did Christ love us? Pause just a moment. See the cross. See the humiliation. See the suffering and the shame. See the death. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Are we willing to die to self for others? It's a me first world isn't it? 
But frankly, it always has been. It always has been a me first world. Natural man cannot prioritize others' best interests over his own. Only in Christ is this possible. Only in Christ, through his power working in and through us, can we love in this way. Milton community aspires to love God and others like Christ. And Jesus said in John chapter 13 that as we do this, as we love one another the same way that he has loved us, the world will see him through us. They will see and recognize him in and through us as a church, as individuals. But that wasn't all he said. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus said, it's easy to love those who love you. Right? It's easy for me to say, I love all of y'all coming on the heels of last Sunday. I felt loved. Some guy walks up tomorrow and hits me in the mouth. It's not love I'm feeling. Right? But Scripture tells me I'm supposed to love him the same way Christ loved him. This is our mandate. Not just to love those who are easy to love, but to love all, even our enemies, even those who hate us and despise us, as Christ did. This is a countercultural position. A countercultural kindness is what needs to define us and display God's glory in this community. It's a world filled with anger and hostility and violence. And it's easy to follow the same pattern that's dominating our culture. It's easy to get caught up in that. It's easy to give as they give to us. But we have an incredible opportunity before us. Christians can and should be distinct from the culture. As we demonstrate kindness, compassion, encouragement, help for others, Christ is portrayed. This week, Nathan and I had the opportunity to meet with city officials, including the mayor who was here last Sunday. And they had a favor to ask of us because Milton Community Church was in a position to do something for them. And the truth of the matter is, Nathan and I talked about after this, they didn't expect us to say yes. Now, from our perspective, as we listened to their question being unfolded, to me, it was an easy yes. It was a no-brainer. And when we said yes, there was this relief that swept the room. And one man made this statement that's haunted me all week. He said, Oh, I'm thankful for such cooperation in our community. This truly humbles me. And his statement has haunted me every morning, every night since. That some simple, no-brainer decision on our part had that impact upon him. Hmm. It's a simple kindness, But in their world, in their political environment, this is an unusual kindness. It's a countercultural kindness that enables us to point others to Christ. Why did we have the community cookout last Sunday? It was supposed to have been a community cookout last Sunday. 
We do it not because of those fast, immediate results that we expect. We didn't expect 100 people to show up and become part of our church. We do it because we're commanded to love them and we're trying to express love to them. You should have heard and seen their faces when we walked into that office, that conference room, with that big basket of goodies that Margaret put together. They just went on and on about it. And you heard the mayor say last week, this has become an annual thing. It's become a tradition that they look forward to. Incrementally, step by step, we're convincing them that we do care, that it's not empty platitudes. We want our community to know that we care about them, that we want to express our appreciation and love for them and to tell them we're praying for them. What good does that do, Pastor? Well, it begins to plant seeds in their minds. It begins to raise questions. As we prepared to leave the conference room at City Hall, the mayor, being very gracious as he is, he said, I just want to thank you. We appreciate Milton Community Church. We appreciate the church. And this is just a real blessing to us. And we were able to look at him and say, Mr. Mayor, We want you to know we mean it when we say we want to be the first call you make when there's a problem. We want you to know we're going to stand in the gap. We're going to reflect Christ's care and glory as best we can. And in Christ, each of you can do similar things in your neighborhood, at work, wherever you engage people. And not only can you, you should, right? Because you're showing them a distinct way of living, a countercultural way of living. They turn on the same news you do. They see what's going on in the world. They see what's taking place on the air, air flights going on around the world. They see the brawling and the fighting and the cursing and the hatred and the greed. And when you do some, when you show countercultural kindness, you're showing them a different thing to focus on, something that's going to grab their attention, that's going to grip their hearts. They may not admit it to begin with, but one day, one day, they will. Listen, I'm not making these things up. I did something for a neighbor recently, and this is what she told me. On at least two occasions in and around that event, she said, I can't believe this. I said, why can't you believe it? She said, no one's, this lady is, she's older than I am. I'll stop right there. She said, no one's ever done this for me. Listen, it's an easy, it it was low cost, low risk. And I'm thinking, how tragic the world we're living in. People do things like that for my mom where she lives every day. It's an indictment on us who live in this area where we're so fast-paced and caught up in the things of life day in and day out that we're not seeing the needs and the opportunities in front of us. We're not taking advantage of the opportunities God's giving us to make his name great, to give them a reason to ask us about the hope that's within us. I know many of you are, and I'm grateful for that. And that's the kind of church that we want. That's the kind of culture that we want here. 
where we're always stepping into those things, leaning into them with all that we are. We want them to know we're Christians. We want them to know we're not perfect, but we are growing in Christ and his love. And we want them to know, thirdly, that we are passionate for God's glory, not ours. This means that we're motivated to bring glory to God. We're not concerned with emulating the world or its culture. Not that we want to be onerous or cantankerous in any way, but that's not what we live for. We make no apologies for being distinctly Christian. Our models are Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. Ephesians 4 that we just read from. Galatians 5, talking about being filled with the Spirit. These are the the chapters that give us the marching orders for how we're to be distinct in this world. And we should remain focused on God's unchanging truth. We're not enemies to the community, nor are we apathetic about our community and our world. We aspire to be good stewards of all that God has made. We aspire to be good citizens as God directs us. We aspire to be good contributors with our votes, with our voices, with our vocations. All these ways are ways that we can be different than the rest of the world for Christ and his glory. What does he say here? So that they may look and recognize something is different and give glory to God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the world, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they're trying to find something against you they can accuse you of, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Hmm. We're on mission in this world. We're not coasting through it. We are God's gospel-proclaiming ambassadors, not living our best life now. One of the great heresies plaguing this church is that very statement I just gave you. This world is not about living our best life now. This world is pointed toward the best life now, which is the future in God's presence. What this life is about is pointing people to him. Not selling our souls for this world. Milton Community Church, our marching orders are clear. We're called and set apart by God to honor him in all things. Inside the walls, outside the walls. We can't be these people in our own power. We must die to self and be surrendered to the spirit of God living within us. In Christ, we can and will be a city on a hill. We will be reflecting Christ. I know you're familiar with the story of the Titanic, the sinking of the Titanic. I found out recently that there were three other boats close in proximity to the boat when it went down. You probably knew that, but there's been some negligence in my upbringing and education. I didn't know that, but there were three boats in the area. There was a boat called the Samson that was only seven miles from the Titanic when it went down, when it hit the iceberg. They sent out flares, rockets. They, They were seeking to ask help of anybody who was there. This boat, the Samson, seven miles away, saw the flares, they saw the signals, but their problem was their crew was illegally killing seals, harvesting seals, and they didn't want to be caught with blood on their hands. So they went in the opposite direction. They fled the scene to protect themselves. Then there was the Californian, which was 20 miles away, They turned off their radio 
about 10 minutes before the Titanic hit its iceberg. They weren't listening. They saw the rockets and the flares in the distance, but they couldn't figure out why another boat would be doing these things. They justified not responding because they were moving through a heavy ice field there in the water. And so it would be risky, risky to turn and go in the direction at an accelerated pace. They were unwilling to risk their own safety and comfort to respond. The Carpathia. Carpathia was 58 miles away. Its radio was on, and when it got the call from the Titanic that it was sinking, it powered up all of its engines and headed straight for it. Navigating around icebergs, going through the same ice field, it ran full power ahead for three and a half hours. When the crew showed up at the scene, many people had already perished. But that boat was able to rescue 705 persons floundering in the water. It was, you see, this, church, this boat was on a mission mode. It was on a mission The Californian was in a self-protection mode. The Samson was in a selfish and rebellious mode. What kind of mode do we want to be in as a church? Are we just interested in protecting our own interests? Isolating ourselves from the community? Isolating our resources and keep hoarding all these things to ourselves? Or might we find ourselves being called to follow the example of the Carpathia? You know, God could have ignored us and condemned us in our fallen condition. He could have been justified in simply wiping us out due to our rebellion. But he left the glories of heaven, condescended to become a man in order to seek and to save that which was lost. How grateful we should be for a God who chose to be on mission to save us. This morning, we remember and we celebrate His atoning and saving work. We come to the table, the Lord's table, to remember all that He has done. He suffered in our place. He shed His blood and He died. His glorious resurrection assures us of our future resurrection in Him. So we come to the table, obeying His instruction to remember to remind ourselves regularly of what he has done for us. And my prayer would be that it would motivate us as we go about living our daily lives to be like him, to emulate him in this fallen world. The table is for those who are true Christians, for those who believe the gospel, have confessed their sin, rejected their sin, turned from it, and put all their trust and hope in Christ and Christ only. Those who are members in good standing here at Milton Community Church or those who are in good standing as members of a like church of faith and practice, a church that preaches the gospel unapologetically and practices the ordinances scripturally. I'm going to call us to a time of silent reflection that we might examine our hearts this morning before coming to the table, that we might acknowledge and repent of sin that has a claim in our lives. And then 
After we pray, we're going to sing. And as we sing, I invite you to come and receive the elements, to take elements and return to your seat. And Pastor Nathan's going to come and lead us through participation in the Lord's table. Would you pray with me at this time? Father, we understand the significance of this table, of these elements, the wine, the bread, indicative of your blood, your body, given for us. We thank you that you're a mission God who could have just leaned into being a judging God and simply annihilated us, condemned us forever. But you did the hard thing this selfless thing, stepping out of eternity and coming to pursue us and to redeem us. May we remember this gospel today. May we, Lord, be animated with your love and your spirit that as we celebrate and remember that, Lord, you might use it to fuel and ignite us into being people of mission that reflect your mission-mindedness. Cleanse our hearts today. May there be nothing, Lord, that stands between us and you in these moments. May there be nothing that stands between us as your people. May our hearts be pure before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.